This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers segment. And in the past, we featured the life of Fred Smith, building FedEx from nothing into, well, something. And Bernie Marcus, a kind supporter of this show, and he and a couple of his friends built Home Depot from scratch and wrote a book called Built from Scratch. And we love entrepreneur stories. We even did Mario Andretti, an hour on him and his life, because my goodness, what a life it was. And it was an entrepreneur's story because he owned a, a racing car uh, company, ultimately, and employed a lot of people. And joining us today, we love to do small businesses, mid-sized businesses. It's quite a story. Joining us today is Don Lafriti. We're going to start from the beginning. Don owns now 77 restaurants in Arizona, Arkansas, Illinois, Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Texas. But she grew up in humble beginnings And Dawn, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You bet. Now, before we get into the business story, Dawn, we always start, no matter who we talk to here on this show, with the the childhood, the parents, the location, uh, the early life. uh, And talk talk to us about your, your parents and where you grew up and the circumstances under which you grew up. So I grew up in uh, Orange County, California, and uh, my father was not much of a provider. My mother always was providing for the family. My father just wasn't uh, the perfect human being. So my mom worked long hours to feed us, put a roof over our head. But I started working at a very young age, babysitting, taking odd jobs, anything I could to make a few bucks. And I always had the pressure um, as a child as to wondering if the bills were going to be paid, if there was enough food on the table, if we were going to make ends meet. And I remember thinking as a, as a young girl, you know, one day I just want to own my own company so I don't have to worry about this. I want to be in charge of my own destiny. So I always knew that working was something I was going to have to do. I wasn't going to get married and have babies and have a husband. I was going to work and I was going to make my way in the world. And so when I turned 16... I got a job uh, at Taco Bell, right around the corner where I could walk, and I saved up enough money to get a car so that I could get a job at Denny's. And at the time, my mother was a district manager for Denny's, and I just felt that it would be a great stepping stone for me. I could waitress. I could earn tips. So that's what I did. I got a job. I was a hostess. I saw that waitresses were making a lot more money. And I begged and I begged and I begged to be a waitress. And I was pretty young. I was 16 and a half at the time. And the manager would say to me, no, we need you as a hostess. You're such a great hostess. We can't make you a waitress. And I just pressed on him until he finally gave me the chance. And I became the best waitress he had had. I made a lot of money in tips. I saved them all uh, in hopes of buying my own business one day, of which I didn't know at the time what it would be. And back in the early 80s, uh, Denny's bought a chain of restaurants called Hobo Joe's and Colony Kitchens. And there was one restaurant in Globe, Arizona. It was a tiny little mining town about 80 miles east of Phoenix. Um, And they had a restaurant there that they didn't want to convert to a Denny's. And a manager friend of mine and I, we got wind of this store, and we ended up buying it off of very little savings credit cards. We took every penny we could off credit cards. We went and we applied 5000 here, 5000 there, bought our first restaurant off credit cards, did well with it. And then in 1984, oil went bust in West Texas. 
and Denny's Corporate called and said, we have four dog stores. Would you like to take a shot at them? <laughs> and that was really, I think, the big moment in, you know, realizing, you know, I'm, I'm going to be my, my own business owner. I, I was, you know, with the first restaurant in Arizona, but there was something bigger about this. This was I was moving my life. Um, this was a, this was four restaurants at once, yep. and it, it was a very exciting time. Although you take a girl from Orange County, California, and you put her in Midland, Texas, <laughs> and there's a little bit of a culture shock and a huge learning curve. Oh my goodness! And I know Midland well. I've been there many times. It's uh, it's the heart of the oil patch. It's the Permian Basin, and right now they've got some of the biggest oil finds in world history there. But when gas prices go down. Oh, my goodness. Right. So it's feast or famine. It is feast or famine. Even the most rambunctious multimillionaire oil man doesn't look like the same man uh, when oil prices are down, Don. Well, it's it really something. True. It's so true. And it, even to this day, you know, I've, I've uh, been in West Texas for 30 years now. When oil's booming, I can't even get somebody to wash my windows because... They're working the oil fields or mow my grass. I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting city how you do business there, and you either have tons and tons of business and not enough help, or tons of help and not enough business. Right. And and the great thing about starting out in West Texas is I learned how to survive. Oh my goodness, Don! Everyone should start. It's the equivalent in West Texas because it's the equivalent of uh, Paris Island. It's like boot camp for an entrepreneur. You know, it really is. And I remember being young. I was I was very young when I started out there, and I would work seventeen hours a day just to be able to make ends meet. And it really taught me a lot. And, and the biggest thing it taught me is there's always going to be a rainy day. You know, there's always going to be a time when sales aren't where they should be or when costs are higher than they should be. And it really prepped me for what was to come later down in my career. Well, let's hold that thought. And when we come back on the other side, I'm going to back up just a little bit. I want to ask about what you learned working at such a young age. Very often on this show, one of the recurring themes is why we aren't having our kids working younger. So many kids aren't learning. They're learning a lot of things, but they're not necessarily learning how to put in a hard day's work. Well, I have a lot to say about that. I so am sure you, Don. I am sure you do owning 77 restaurants. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and this is our American Dreamer segment. We love doing these because, well, what you heard from Don was what you hear from all these folks. I, I just want to be my own boss. I want to take destiny in my own hands. And if you remember Bernie Marcus, his mother, well, she had that uh, arthritis. She couldn't move. As he said, my father just wasn't a very good provider. Sounded exactly like Don's circumstance. Lived in Newark, New Jersey, in a tough neighborhood. And yet at 50, started Home Depot. And that is the American dream. And that's why we love doing this American Dreamer series. This is, again, Lee Habib. This is our American story, the story of Don LaFrida. And her remarkable rise to own 77 restaurants in this great country. More after these messages.
is Our American Stories. Our American Dreamer series continues with Don LaFrieda. And Don, I wanted to just backtrack a second during the break. We were just commenting about working early, starting work at a young age. And I actually think it was an advantage for you that you started young. And I don't know that any of this would have been possible had you not started working at a young age and not had to face tough circumstances. Talk a little bit about how that might have been an opportunity for you while other people might have seen it as bad luck. Well, you know, I knew I didn't have some of the options that other people had. And so, as I said to you earlier, I knew I was going to have to work. So if I wanted a car, I was going to have to work to get the car. If I wanted new clothing, if I wanted to go out to eat, anything I really wanted at that age, I had to work for. I had to work really starting much younger than 16 just to get some of the things that I might have personally wanted. So going out and getting a job was very empowering for me. I was finally in control of really my own money, my own destiny, what I could have, what I couldn't have, instead of someone always saying, well, we can't afford that. Or, you know, living in a household with a a parent that doesn't work and only one parent, you know, providing for three children, it was very rough times. And, you know, we all survived. And I know people have harder luck stories than I do. But, I started, as I said, working at the age of 10 and 11 to make money to buy a new dress for Easter. And so what I learned is money could buy me things. It could buy me control of my life. It could let me be in charge of where I wanted to go. And where I wanted to go was to the top. And I had hoped to go to college, and that was my wish, and I started out there, and I didn't quite make it. So I knew I just had to work extra hard to to have the things I wanted to have in life and to have a career. And we learn so often that the entrepreneurs that we've been talking to, so many of them either drop out of college, don't ever get to college. Uh, we, when we did Steve Jobs for the hour, his speech at Stanford was about him dropping out at Reed College, which he right. did. And then he dropped back in and took a calligraphy course, but only just auditing it. And that calligraphy course set in motion a way of thinking about space and art and beauty And he was advising these kids, look, God bless that you went to Stanford, but lots of great things happen without college. And let's talk about the flip side of this, Dawn, work and young people. Uh, You hire a lot of young people. We're going to continue with your story, but you hire a lot of young people. Talk about the work ethic now and what you're bumping up against as you go to hire people. What's the pool of workers now today like? What was oh it like gosh. 20 years ago? Oh, my gosh. It's it's just worlds different. So, And, and I'm going to tell you, I'm the mother of uh, 13-year-old twin sons, and, and I want to give them everything that I didn't have. But in thinking that, I also have to think about what we're faced with today, and, and it's my generation that it has caused what I think is some of the problem within the workforce because times are a little different. We want to give our kids better. We don't necessarily make them rush out and get a job at 16. We buy them cars. We buy them cell phones. uh, We want them to be in sports. We want them to be focusing on their homework. Well, there's really not a lot of time to go get a job. Well, for me, I didn't have a choice. I had to get a job. And I think that's part of the problem today. A, there's not enough workforce. But also, when I look back to when I bought my first restaurant, the competition was very different. I mean, there was Denny's. There were maybe a couple of other restaurants. Now there's 50 yep. in a two- or three-mile radius, all begging for the same customer and the same employee. 
we all need to staff our restaurants and we all need customers, but all of it gets a little piece of your pie. So here's what happens. When I was a server, I wouldn't even dream of calling in sick and definitely not no call, no show. Well, today, well, you know, I want to go to a concert or, you know, I'm going to go away for the weekend. I'll just not show up because I can get a job across the street with no problem because everybody's hiring. And I think that's a large part of the problem. Because you you don't you don't have the longevity. You don't you, you know you can get a job anywhere, so I don't think you're as dedicated. Yep. Yep. I think that's a huge 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 problem today in addition to kids don't have to work as hard. And so when we're building in neighborhoods that are more up and coming and prominent the kids aren't having to work. Yeah, you know, when I was young, and I hate doing the back-in-the-day stuff because we all sound so old and mean that way, but I do think there's something here. You know, I just remember all the kids I knew. If we went to do something, we weren't allowed to quit. I mean, I couldn't go back to my dad when I was working at Roy Rogers, my first job, and say, I don't want to do this anymore. I couldn't say those words to him. They wouldn't have been greeted with kindness I would have had severe consequences, and I couldn't think of not working for a job for at least a year, given it the old college try, and I better have found a different job before I talked to Dad about that job. Well, and you know what the hard part about that is for employers is we, we invest money in your training. Yep. And it becomes very costly. And I have a friend of mine who runs a company, and, he, and this was a few years back before things got really bad. He says, you know, I was interviewing someone for a job, and it was more like they were in, interviewing me. Uh, how many days off do I get? How many sick days do I get? How many times a year do I get a review? When do I get my raises? How many times can I call in sick? You know, I mean, it's like you're being interviewed instead of interviewing the employee. And I don't know if it's just kind of where we've evolved as a society. But I do think things need to change a little to be more balanced. And I think it's really good for kids to work. I think it gives them a sense of accomplishment. It gives them a purpose, something to look forward to, something to dream about. You know, I I always want to give things to my children, but I remember what it was like growing up to be dreaming of getting a bicycle or, you know, a car or even my first restaurant. And when you don't have those kind of dreams, I think you're missing out because you're not building on that. Yeah, it's so true. And we, we've spent some time on that Stanford study where they gave kids rewards, bigger rewards for certain delayed gratification, even bigger rewards. And it's turning out on a longitudinal study that the single most important, important characteristic for success is the ability to delay gratification. And that's the only way a dream can ever come true, Don, is if you, you stick at it. And you stay at it. And by the way, I hate blaming the kids for this kind of stuff because in the end, it's the adults that created this mess, not the kids. you know, it it, it is. And again, I wouldn't have been in the situation I was in had I not been forced to by my circumstances. I had to work. You had no choice. I had no choice. And and you know what? I'm grateful for every moment of it. I don't regret it. It put me on my journey. And um, I've had the most wonderful life and career with Denny's. You know, there's this one, there's a note here, and we have a bunch of quotes from you, and I know nothing makes people cringe in hearing their own quotes, but you, from one particular story about you, you said, I knew from a very young age that I would be self-employed. As a young girl, I recall sitting with my mother and saying to her, one day, I'm going to own my own company and make a lot of money. And she said to me, of course you are. 
Talk about that positive reinforcement of your mom. Some moms would have said, there's no way that's going to happen, sweetheart. Well, you know, I can't even begin to tell you how powerful that is. My mom's given me two very powerful things, and that is one of them. And because I thought my whole life, well, every time I felt the stumbling block, I didn't let it get me down. Of course I'm going to own my own company. Of course I'm going to be successful. I mean, I just I just believed that. If my mom believed in me, you know, of course you're going to do that. My mom didn't say, well, you know, don't set your dreams too big or don't aim too high. She just said, of course you are. So all along my path, I always thought, well, of course I am. Yep. I and, always thought positive about it. And those words, and we always tell people who are listening, your words matter to the people you're telling them to. We did an hour on Vince Lombardi, and we had Jerry Kramer. We had a clip from Jerry Kramer, the great All-American and All-Pro guard. And, and Lombardi was tough on Kramer. And Kramer was wondering whether he had it in him to be a pro. But he said, but one day, Coach came in the locker room, and he said, Kramer, you know why I'm so hard on you? Because you're going to be the best damn player of all time. You've got it in you. And he said, from that day forward, from that day forward, I was a changed man. And by the way, we heard this from him, Don, like 30 years after that incident. But he said it was the turning point in his life that someone believed in him that much. Well, I think, I think, I think we all have something like that. And as I mentioned to you, I have a, a second thing my mother did with me, and it is what propelled me, I think, to, to really go forward. And I, when I was buying my first restaurant, I was 23 years old, and I was a little nervous. And I thought, wow, man, there's, there's 30 people depending upon me for a job. What if, you know, what if I can't do it? What if I fail? What if, what if something goes wrong? And my mom looked at me and she says, so you start over at 26. (laughs) And I thought to myself, yeah, if I can't do it, I just start over and I keep trying. Yep. Well, that's fantastic. And and bless her heart for doing that for you, Don. And when we come back, we're going to pick up where we left off on growing this business. Because my goodness, getting those new restaurants, what a challenge for you. When we come back, the story of Don LaFrieda and the American Dreamer series that we love doing here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. American Stories, and we're talking with Don LaFrieda. It's our American Dreamers segment, and let's talk a little bit more about one thing that happened when you were young that mattered as you got older. While still working at Denny's, Don, you took a second job selling accounting software and learned about computers and running a business. And and so now you walk into this world of now having to manage four new stores, the ups, the downs, keeping a certain level of workforce in place dealing with the rainy days, dealing with the surfeit of those great times and tucking some away. What part did knowing about accounting and bumping up against that accounting software play in your development? Oh, it's such a huge part. Um, Well, first off, I learned about computers. And when I was going to school, they didn't teach us that. So I got that background. But I learned about how to run a small business 
when you work for a small company, you wear a lot of different hats. So I got to understand payroll, accounts payable, scheduling, billing, sales, um, a lot of different things, even just how to handle an influx of incoming mail, just a whole wide variety of um, office skills that I never had working in a restaurant. And, and I learned how to develop spreadsheets, which became instrumental in me doing forecasting and budgeting and um, helping me to accomplish a lot more in a shorter amount of time because I was working in a restaurant. I was doing all the accounting for our company. So there was there was a lot to do, and I felt very ready for it, having spent the time working in that accounting firm. And the accounting firm, or the, the uh, small software firm that I worked for, they sold accounting software to CPAs and lawyers. So when you, when you have to learn the software, you're learning about debits and credits and where things get posted and profit and loss statements. And I also was, you know, learning about legal software for lawyers. So I got to just learn a ton of things that I think gave me an advantage over um, other other franchisees or small business owners who who maybe didn't have that background. Yeah, and I always pity the person who doesn't understand cash flow too. And I'm Lebanese, so it's sort of drilled into our heads from birth. Um, we're trading people, Lebanese people, and so we know what cash flow means. We heard about it as kids, always saving enough for a rainy day, even more. Um, and that cash is king in a business because if you run out of it, boy, you're going to pay hard for it. Cash is king. And, you know, when you buy your business, um, you get your money, you buy your restaurant. Well, they don't tell you when you're 23 that, well, there's uh, deposits on every electric account you have and every water account and every gas account and every sales tax account. And there's things that you don't anticipate that you think, oh, I'm buying my restaurant and I'm paying this for it. Then you walk in the door and you need to come up with an extra $100,000 or whatever the magic number is for all the deposits. And you go, oh, my gosh, take a deep breath. What am I going to do next? You bet. And so now you've got the stores in West Texas. How do you go from there and learning all the things you did in that really almost a battlefield? Because And not that Midland's a battlefield, but just the ups and downs we were talking about. Uh, what were the next steps to getting to where you are today? How did you do that, Dawn? So I had I had a business partner back then, and um, we were living in West Texas, and I was incredibly homesick. And the next biggest city to where I was living, I was living outside of Midland in a town called San Angelo because it had a lake and I missed the beach. And uh, San Antonio was the next biggest city, and so I finally convinced Denny's to sell us a store in uh, – in San Antonio, bought one store there, ended up uh, converting a couple more. So it, oh, I had maybe eight or so at the time. I ended up very soon after there buying out my business partner, and then I just went on a development craze and decided that I wanted to buy out other franchisees. I wanted to look at opportunities within Denny's. I wanted to build from the ground up. I wanted to move into some other markets. I left no stone unturned. I just had a real hunger for growth. And I think I'd had it when I was with my prior business partner. But, you know, when two people have to make a decision and one is a bigger risk taker than the other, 
um, you're not always aligned. And I always wanted to grow and develop, I think, at a much deeper level than she did. Yeah, you know, it was interesting when we were doing Bernie Marcus's story. Bernie actually admitted that he sometimes wanted to grow too fast. And then if it hadn't been for Arthur, his, his gas pedal was always all the way down. And so he said, thank goodness Arthur periodically slowed me down. In this case, though, it sounds like it, you were really getting held back. Arthur didn't hold Bernie well, back. I, I, was, I, I was being held back because, you know, people have different egos and different, um, different things that are important to them at different times in their life. And I, I was just ready to develop and, and, and to grow. And I, I didn't have a specific number in mind, but I just knew I wanted to develop more restaurants. And I made mistakes along the way. I'm not going to say I didn't. And there's things that you have no control over that you don't foresee in the economy, a 9-11, a financial crisis, a, a market that struggles. I mean, there's things that happen, and you, you're not always prepped for it. But, again, I was, you know, the captain of my own destiny, and so whatever I laid out for myself, I was going to fix if I created a problem. And I think in the end it, it made me stronger because when I did get myself into a pickle in a market, I said, how am I going to get myself out? Well, I'm going to upgrade my stores. I'm going to buy more stores. I'm going to close these stores. I'm, you know, I, I would set out a strategy for how I was going to tackle whatever situation came my way. And by the way, it was interesting earlier you had said you convinced Denny's. I did. Uh, and and uh, it sounded to me like you were not just going to convince them. You were going to just wear them down. Well, uh, that's, yeah. So I would call frequently, um, frequently, please sell us a store in San Antonio. And, and I got no for a long time, and they finally caved in, and, and we got to buy one. And this, this one in particular particular store I had wanted, and they wouldn't sell it, and they wouldn't sell it. But 25 years later, Lee, they sold it to me. So I waited 25 <laughs> years for that store, but I finally got it. Well, that's perseverance, Dawn. And, and by the way, we know that that's one of the major attributes to being an entrepreneur or to being really good at anything. You just got to stick to it. It doesn't come overnight. And talk about just a little bit here, and we're going to come back on the other side and talk about this too. Uh, I often think that sometimes the wage gap between men and women yeah, there's sexism, there's no doubt, and it's, it's rampant. But I also think that the women I've met, who, when they come to me and say, well, how do I go get a, way, a raise? And I go, you got to go fight for one. And they go, no, I don't, I don't I, you know, I'm just not comfortable doing that. And then, of course, the, the, the male boss, well, he's never going to lean down and give that woman the raise. And do you think there, that a part of the wage gap has to do with women not being trained from the ground up. And this is sexist, too. I mean, the, the, you know, human beings are taught to fight for things, and we're teaching our boys to fight, but we're not teaching our girls to fight for a raise. Do you find that happens as a boss? Uh, no, but I'm in a different situation because I am a female, and I pay all my people in my company based upon performance, experience, job code. So we don't discriminate between gender. Right. But we're in a in the hospitality industry, which is uh, it's not like being an executive or being in higher management where you're competing with men. I mean we have we actually have a higher percentage of women employees by a few percent than we do men, but we pay them fairly based upon what market they're working in, uh, what volume of restaurant they're managing, you know, various criteria. So we don't, like I said, discriminate between male and female. However, I have several friends who 
have come to me over the years that when they talk to me about their careers and what they're making, I have coached them and said, you know, unless you go in and say this is unacceptable. Now, I don't know what their male counterparts are making, but I know as a female what they were being paid was yep. below what, what they should have. And and I can tell you quite honestly, uh, one in particular p- person I coached got a $10,000 raise immediately and then went on to propel higher. Well, and that's great that you did that. And I think we all need to coach everyone that, you know, you just got to fight for what you believe in. And it doesn't matter what sex you are. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what, what sexual orientation you are. Fight. Fight. And you'll have a much better chance of getting what you want. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Our American Dreamer series with Don LaFrieda. More after these messages. our American stories. We love asking people what their favorite music was, especially when they were young. And thus we come in with Barry Manilow, somebody that Don loved. And it looks like you did make it, Don. But then again, something tells me at 77 restaurants, you're not finished. Well, no, and it's already 78, so uh-huh. um, definitely not finished, even though you just outed me as a fan which I totally am. So thank you for that song, because I love him, and I've gotten to meet him twice, and it's been, um, it was really great to get to meet somebody that you enjoyed so much growing up. That is terrific. And let's talk about that. You're, you're, you're at 78 restaurants and going strong. What's your biggest problem uh, as it relates to running your business now, and maybe even two? Uh, hands down, staffing. Finding enough employees. The, I've passed on restaurants because I couldn't find enough help. And the last thing you want to do is build a restaurant and not be able to give great service. And I think that is my single biggest challenge today. I mean, we have a lot of other issues that are out there. Um, there's things we have control of and things we don't have control of. And this is just something that over the course of the last 10 years has just gotten horrific to deal with. And what are the principal problems within that? Could you break some of that down? Well, I think as we discussed earlier, everybody is hiring. Right. And I also think there's a fair amount of the population that doesn't have to work that when we were growing up, we were working at 16, 17, 18, 20, 22. There's a whole segment of kids, young adults, going to college, not having to work. Um, there's a lot of factors, and there are a lot more jobs. And so, so what, do you, what do you do about that, Don? I mean, and, and what do you do to retain the people that you currently have? Well, that, that's really the key, but even, even when you do your best, to retain them, that doesn't always that doesn't always work because people have different agendas. There's a lot of people that just want to earn a paycheck for a short amount of time to, oh, maybe get their down payment on their apartment and move on. I don't know. There's not the longevity that I saw growing up. There's not the commitment to your employer, to your job, to your customer. 
So, for instance, and and I don't want to generalize or say that everybody is like this, but, you know, we have more drugs in society than we had before. And I will call in people. I'll interview them. I will say, you know, can you pass a background check? Can you pass a drug test? Oh, yes, yes, yes. So we hire them because we need bodies. We need to get people in training. And then many, many, many times they fail the drug test. So I think that's something that has plagued uh, our industry. Yep. For a long time. And by the way, Dawn, it's not just your industry. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff put out a report two years ago that said 75% of American males don't qualify to enter the military because of felonies, an inability to simply pass the basic physical and or test, and drug tests. So it's not just you that's facing that particular problem, particularly with males, but they even said that it was a growing factor with the females, too. Yeah, oh, it's a, pro- it's a problem, and I, I believe that dilutes the workforce for us. I think every new building on every new corner dilutes the workforce. I think kids that don't have to work, um, and, and I'm happy for them, uh, dilutes the workforce. It, it doesn't leave us a lot to choose from. In, in, in the olden days, huh, back when I was young, you had to, I had to wait in line six months for my job at Denny's. Today you run an ad, and you... You might get somebody that says they'll come in for an interview, and you you got to hope that they show because a lot of times they'll schedule an interview and not even show. Yeah, that's not a good way to, 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 to make an impression on your future boss. Well, Dawn. you know, it's not. But, again, they know that tomorrow there's a help wanted sign on every corner. It's so, it's so true. How many people do you employ right now, Close Dawn? to 3,000. Oh, my goodness. That's incredible. It's a lot, and in the, and in the restaurant industry, it has high turnover with servers and cooks, and so we really end up turning about 7,500 in a year. Oh, just keeping track of that has it's, got to be something. It's a lot. I'm, I'm so grateful I have wonderful people to help me do all that. And when, what you do know, you... When, you, when you collect them along the way, a few each year, <laughs> yep. you, know, you kind of pace yourself and, and you grow into it. That's so true. And what do you do for your own work-life balance, Dawn? What do you and your partner do? And uh, just talk to us a bit about that. Uh, You know, our big thing is dining out, traveling, theater, concerts, um, and attending an awful lot of basketball games. Good for you. That that, that comes with 13-year-old twin boys. Now, we, we did a special on Tim Duncan's retirement. Yeah, because what a remarkable human being! Right? And yeah, he's he's a he's a great guy. Uh, my kids were just recently at a birthday party, and uh, his children were at the same party, and uh, he was shooting free throws with my kids. They thought, you know, they'd gone to heaven. Well, yeah, I, I would have gone to heaven too. I, that'd be a dream of mine. Next time there's a ch- shot at that dawn, give us a buzz. I'll be in San Antonio in a New York minute. I was conceived in San Antonio at Lackland wow. Air Force Base, wow. and I was born at Sampson Air Force Base in Syracuse. So I, I, mean, I tracked so it back. Been around. Yeah, been I, around. I figured it out. Well, um, I think Tim Duncan is just a phenomenal athlete, a phenomenal human being, gives back to the community, has the right spirit about the sport, about community, about just everything. He's a, a great individual. Well, I love the way he retired. He didn't have one of these Kobe Bryant, you know, and this is no slam on Kobe. I love Kobe too. Everyone's different. But he just wrote a little note saying, I'm not playing anymore. And they had to like almost pull him into like just a, a goodbye dinner. 
um, because he just he's just such a humble guy, the way he played and you know the way he lives. It's not about Timmy Duncan. No, he's very humble and he always gives credit to others and lets, lets everybody be part of the game, even yeah. if he can make the shot. You bet. And, and Don, I had to tell you a quick story because I was doing a, a, some poll and dial testing uh, for, uh, for Frank Luntz, who was poll and dial testing minimum wage and the, the minimum wage issue, which I'll ask you about in a second. Um, but I said, look, I, I said, Frank, let me just tell a story to this group of folks. And it was half Republican, half Democrat. And all I did was come in and tell a very simple story. I told your story. And I said that a minimum wage job is an entry-level job to a future and a life mm-hmm. where you learn about work and you learn about the dignity of work. And then pretty soon you can save enough money to get a, uh, get a store of your own and then maybe get a couple more. And this is the story of franchising in America, Don. It's amazing that 20% of the American workforce works under this, this idea called franchising. And by the way, you've made a full bet on Denny's. Most people diversify their portfolio as they start to grow. But you said, no, I'm, I'm, a, Denny's, I'm right. a Denny's girl. That's that. Talk yeah. about that. Talk about this franchising world and the minimum wage, if you don't mind. Absolutely. So uh, I, I do get offers to, um, to diversify pr- probably every day. Every restaurant concept, uh, any kind of franchising opportunity out there. But I've been very successful with Denny's. I have a fleet of restaurants that I understand the brand inside and out. I know how to troubleshoot the problems. I, I, you know, I know it and I understand it and I love it. And I have a lot of friends I've known who who they've done other concepts, and it, it detracts from what they have that is really making them live well. Yeah. There, there are some that do really great in other concepts, but I just never wanted to take my focus off Denny's. I just thought, you know what, I'm set, I'm set up to grow. My team knows Denny's. We can just take this and we can go. And, and people often ask me also, well, why don't you start your own restaurant? Why don't you do your own concept? You could, you know, wouldn't have to pay all those royalties and advertising fees. And I said, yeah, you know, you're right about that, but maybe I'd only have 10 restaurants because I'd have to be thinking about the decor and the sign and the menu and the recipes and the uniforms and what's my building going to look like and architects. And, you know, with franchising, you can just develop at a faster pace because a lot of that's done for you in the fees that you pay. And, And you get a proven concept. If I hang the name Dawn's up, who knows how many people will come? There's 97% brand awareness of a Denny's sign, and, and I think that's powerful. And um, we serve everybody, and, and I like that. I, er, anybody can go to Denny's. It's not you, – you can be rich, you can be poor. There's something there for everybody, and I like that about my brand. Yep, it's so true. And then you get to focus on operations and execution and do what you know best, and these big national branders are – are coming in there and they have the leverage to do what they do. And it's been such a terrific model. I think it's created more wealth for the ordinary American. I think, I think it's fantastic. And, you know, I, I, I've, I've, I've been happy having one brand. And, you know, I, I sometimes I say, well, how many restaurants does one girl need? And, well, as many as, you know, I can possibly get. <laughs> but not at a cost of your quality of life. And, do you want to go learn something new? Do you want to take time away from your existing operation to go pay attention to another brand? And I just didn't want to do that. 
Well, you and your partner, it sounds like, have a great life. And my goodness, you don't want to miss a Spurs game because you have another brand. That would be the end for me, Dawn. Right, or a Barry Manilow concert. Or a Barry Manilow concert. Well, Dawn, thanks so much for joining us for the hour. Dawn LaFrida, a part of our American Dreamers story, started with nothing as a young kid, started working at the age of 10, and now owns 77 Denny's restaurants and employs 3,000 people. Thanks so much, Dawn, for joining us. Great to be here. Appreciate the hour you gave me. You betcha. And you can hear all of what we do at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about sports, and so let's get right into it, because you're about to hear a speech you should have heard, but didn't, maybe a clip or two. We're going to give you the whole thing. It's one of the best speeches I've heard in a long time, and it was given by Brett Favre as he was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. And Favre, for any of you who haven't lived under a rock, spent 20 years in the NFL as a record-breaking gunslinger with a childlike passion for the game. And there's never been anyone quite like him on a sideline. His career, which included 11 Pro Bowls, three All-Pro teams, three MVP awards, and NFL records for completions, 6,300, starts, 298, the Iron Man of the NFL, as well as interceptions, my goodness, he had plenty of them, 336, and fumbles, 166, and sacks, 525. He had records for everything, the good and the bad. And that's the thing about Brett Favre. He'd tell you every time, if you ain't throwing interceptions, you ain't throwing. And you got to take risks and you got to take the consequences with it and go back in there and lead the guys again. And it all culminated again this entire career with a speech. But by the way, you're limited to only 12 minutes. But he broke this record too, 36 minutes. The longest speech ever at Canton. And as only Favre could do, no one wanted to pull the mic from him. Let's take a listen to it. By the way, the first thing you got to start out with is those crazy Packer fans because they came in droves. Take a listen to them because they wouldn't let Brett Favre start. And I've watched a lot of these. I've never seen it happen that long. It was like a minute and a half, and they wouldn't let him start, and everybody's practically crying on the stage because the affection this guy and the bond this guy created with his fans was unlike anything I've ever seen. But why? Thank you, Canton. Thank you, Hall of Fame. Thank you, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Believe me, I'm blessed. I, I'm an extremely blessed man. I look at my family. Um, what a lucky man. To play a game that I love so much for 20 years, to have all the wonderful things happen, what a blessing. 
to share in that in that joy with you guys here tonight. Uh, what an incredible night! What an incredible week! And having my wife introduce me was an easy choice, considering she was there long before my first touchdown pass, long after the last. And then he went on to talk about the first big day in his life that changed his life, his first NFL game, the first one he ever saw, and also quickly thereafter, the second biggest day of his life, which happened at the hinge and heel of that first day. December 18, 1983. I was 14 years old. My dad took my older brother Scott and I to, to see the last regular season game the Saints would play that year as they were playing the Rams. Now, I was pretty certain at 14 years old of what I was going to do in my future, and that was I was going to be the next Roger Stallback or Archie Manning or Joe Montana. Um, but this was the first and only game that I would ever see in person. And if the Saints won this game, they would have made the playoffs for the first time in franchise history. So it was a pretty electric crowd. And as we sat in our seats prior to kickoff, the crowd stood and they pointed in the direction of the Saints tunnel. And as I stood, I saw this long, gray-haired, scruffy beard player emerging from the tunnel. And I knew then and there, as goosebumps ran up my arm and the hair on the back of my neck stood up, that that was what I was destined to do and be. I wanted to be that player. Well, that player happened to be none other than Kenny Stabler. I, I knew that, of course, I didn't have many choices. It was football, baseball, or bust for me. I didn't have many choices, but I knew then and there that I wanted to be and feel what Kenny Stabler was feeling. What an exciting moment for me. The other part about this story that's important is when we returned home that night, what we didn't know is our mother had set up a surprise birthday party for my older brother, Scott, who was turning 17. Well, I unknowingly, unknowingly entered the house first to a large eruption of surprise, and of course it was not my birthday. And as you can imagine, a 14-year-old boy uh, in that situation with all his classmates there was red-faced and embarrassed, and I was looking for the quickest way to get to my bedroom. So as I bolted and ducked my head and made my way through all of our classmates, there was one person that caught my eye and one person only. Well, it didn't matter. I went and hid my room, and as I got up the nerve to come out later, that person and I, we played basketball, we, we talked. We played basketball, we talked. And several days later, as we used to say back in the day, we started going together. Well, that person happened to be my future wife, Deanna. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from this speech about his wife, about his kids, but particularly about his dad, because he spent almost 12 minutes on it. He couldn't get through it. He had to stop a bunch of times. You could tell as the camera kept coming on his family, they were laughing the whole time because he was telling stuff about his dad that most of us today would be appalled at because his dad believed in a sort of old style, tough love. But my goodness, you know one thing, this family believed in it. We might not believe in it now, but boy, the camera didn't lie. Brett Favre's voice didn't lie, and you're going to hear a guy tell a story about his dad 
and how we couldn't have been anything without him. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Brett Favre, and if, you, if you're if you a crying type, uh, get a tissue, because uh, he made the whole place cry. Again, Lee Habib, this is Our American Stories. Brett Favre, his Hall of Fame induction speech. It doesn't get better than this, folks. A little boy from Kiln, Mississippi, a place in the middle of nowhere, becomes world famous. And again, without his dad, it couldn't have happened. Habib and this is our American stories and we're celebrating Brett Favre's life basically the only way you can by listening to him say thanks to all the people who'd gotten him where he got and as you'll learn in this speech he had a lot to be thankful for there were a bunch of people along his life without whom he could not have made it and again and again he will let all of us and remind all of us that how we treat other people along their path can make the difference, particularly when we show a belief in another person. Because Brett will tell you, he didn't have much belief in himself. Where he was from, his size, he does not exactly look like an NFL quarterback. He doesn't have that 6'5 Peyton Manning frame. No, sir. But somehow, he had something inside him that people spotted, nurtured, and developed. And that first person, who he just mentioned, the aforementioned woman that he met, and played basketball with way into the night, into the next day, and herself, practically a world-class athlete, having survived cancer. Well, you're going to hear the story. His wife survived cancer, and she's now running, she's now doing Ironman competitions. Pretty tough. And toughness runs in this family. So here's Brett Favre on his wife, Deanna. By far the strongest and most courageous person I know. She's a wonderful mother of two daughters. An exceptional athlete, not only then, but now as she most recently is competing in an Ironman in the next two months, which is incredible. Definitely a strong woman of faith. She fought cancer in the public eye. Not only won, but she managed, managed to inspire so many, including myself, along the way. She, in the process, she formed her own foundation that has helped countless women in their fight with breast cancer as well. And I'll say this, she's definitely the best-looking grandmother I have ever seen. As our two grandsons are here, Parker and AJ, and I know they're ready to go to bed and they want Paul to stop talking right now. 
But I, one more thing about my wife. She's as beautiful today, and I'm not going to say her age because I got in trouble last year in Green Bay for saying that. But she's as beautiful today as she was December 18th, 1983 in my living room. Uh, Paul Paul kept on talking all right. And after talking about his daughters, he did a shout-out to his mother-in-law. And by the way, how often does that happen, a guy doing a shout-out to his mother-in-law? And listen to Favre choke up talking about this lady. My mother-in-law, who for 33, 34 years has been by far my biggest fan, I have never thrown an interception that has been my fault, according to... According to my mother-in-law, Ann. We all know her as Momo. She's helped raise our kids. She's lived with us in New York, in Minnesota, in Green Bay. And she's helped raise grandkids, other people's kids, you name it. She's one of the most patient and loving women you'll ever... He's choking up here. Not even halfway through. Uh, help me out here. And then it was on to his mother, Bonita, and what she taught him about life and about everything else. My mother, who just recently had her hip replaced, and by no means was she going to be put on waivers for this. She was going to be here. She is here. My mother taught me that being there for your children... My mother taught me that being there for your children is absolutely important. I never, not one time, remember my parents ever not being there at a sporting event, any school function, you name it. They were always there. We ate dinner together. We ate breakfast together. We rode to school together. We did everything together. And that's something that has been lost in this generation. I watched my mother teach special education at Hancock North Central High School for many, many years. And at that time, I didn't appreciate the patience and the type of person that it takes to, to do that type of job. But, but I learned by watching her and being around her students that treating everyone as an equal and with respect is not only important but essential. So, Mom, I say thank you. I love you. Mom was the one who always told us she loved us and was the caregiver. And you had to know my father. He was the heavy-handed one. Um, So it was a good blend, one-two punch. But, Mom, I love you, and thank you so much. And, again, far of time and again stumbled here. We sort of cut out uh, much of that. Uh, And one thing that you got to know, he had no script here. Most of these guys come on pretty scripted. Favre just won it like he did when he pulled back in the huddle. I mean, there was a play 
But what made Favre great always is what happened when the play broke down. He almost got the sense he wanted it to break down. Because in chaos, this guy was just great. And the defense didn't know what to do because he knew how to extend a play. And yeah, there'd be some interceptions, but the thrill of watching him in that chaos is, I think, what Packer fans loved about him. And he didn't just dump the ball away like a lot of quarterbacks would and not take the risk. And that warrior spirit spirit in him is why you keep hearing those fans. And this emotional intimacy that you hear, this sort of raw uh, sort of masculinity that has an emotional side, it's a rare thing that you hear a jock talking like this. And he was always like this. And you'd see him on the sidelines hugging guys and tapping them on the butt and encouraging them and yelling at them and loving on them. And he just, you couldn't get enough of him. And guys loved playing for and with Brett Favre. Here he is on his brother's and his sisters. My two brothers, Scott and Jeff, my sister Brandy, they're sitting here in the front row. I think they all would agree. I love them so much. It was, it was definitely a fun childhood. We competed. We fought. We ate. We competed. We fought. We ate. We loved each other at the end of the day. And we got up the next morning and we started it all over again. But it was wonderful, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I love you guys so much. Thank you. We competed. We fought. We ate. We competed. We fought. We ate. We loved one another. And then we got up all <laughs> in the morning and did it all over again. My goodness, what a great childhood. What a lucky guy. And what a lucky guy to grow up where he grew up with the family he grew up at the time he grew up. This is Lee Habib. This is Brett Favre in his own voice talking about his life, giving thanks. And by the way, we like to share those kind of stories with you because you don't hear them anywhere. This is a clip and then you go to the murder and the mayhem. But this is real life. This is how we all try and live our lives. lives. And Brett Favre did his best to lead with joy, with passion. And again, it's why all those Packer fans trekked to Canton, Ohio. And I mean, they filled the stadium with them. They had to do it in an outdoor stadium. I never saw anything like it. And Brett, well, he knows Packer fans, so he wasn't surprised. When we come back, we told you he was going to tell us about his dad. He did. You're going to hear it. And much more. You're going to hear about his coaches, too. All of them, because he names all of them. And then the players, because he calls them all up, and he calls them out by name. And they're all smiling. Every single one of them made it. All of them made it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Brett Favre's story, in his own words, after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Brett Favre's Hall of Fame speech in Canton, Ohio. We're bringing it all to you. I didn't have the heart to edit any of this out. Who the heck am I to do that? Who the heck is this team to do that? I couldn't stop watching the whole thing. That's why we bring these things to you. Because, my goodness, this just pumped me up by the time it was over. I I was crying, but a really good cry. And you watch the people walk out like they just left a great concert. You could just watch the audience rushing out and then these fireworks. And you watched all the athletes coming together like you hadn't seen. And Favre's backslapping all of them. And he's just one of those guys. One of those guys. And then it was his dad. And he starts off by telling the story of the day he found out his father died. He had a game in Oakland, and he played that game because he knew his dad would have wanted him to. Don't abandon the team. It's sort of a military ethos. And so he honored his father's legacy by playing that game. And it ended up being the greatest performance of his life. And the whole country watched it knowing what had happened. And the Oakland fans, by the way, are not known for being gracious. But the ovation they gave him and the players and the respect they afforded him was really remarkable. You don't see it in sports. You don't equate grace in sports that often. But he won in Oakland and was flying back to Mississippi for the funeral with his bride and with friends. He was given a special escort by the Oakland police. And a special plane was chartered by some friends. And here he is talking about that, that tough flight back home to bury his dad. On our flight back, it was a long flight. And as you can imagine, there was a lot of emotions. As we had just won the game, and, and it was probably the best game that I'd ever played in. But that really didn't matter at that point. And we laughed. We cried. We tried to sleep. We laughed and we cried. And one time in particular, Deanna says to me, and you'd had to know my father. My father was short on praise and long on tough love. He, if, he, if he was ever to praise me, I was not to hear it. It was always, you can do better. He was always pushing me to be better. That was okay. Never did I hear him say, son, you've arrived. You're the best. That was awesome great game. It was always, yeah, but. So Deanna says to me on the plane, you know, your dad had said to me that he had hoped or could not wait for the day that you were inducted into the Hall of Fame so he could introduce you. And up until that moment, I had never thought about the Hall of Fame. And I mean no disrespect to the Hall of Fame. I say this with the utmost respect for all you guys. I had dreamed of playing the, the NFL, believe me, way more than I thought about my, my schoolwork. I thought about being Archie Manning, running around throwing underhand passes. I thought about being my childhood favorite, Roger Stallback, throwing it to Preston Pearson or Drew Pearson, handing it off to Tony Dorsett, being Kenny Stabler coming out of the tunnel. I had thought of those things so many times, but I never thought of the Hall of Fame until that moment. And so a new goal had entered my mind then and there. And I said to myself, I will make it to the Hall of Fame. And his father was a coach. And here he is talking about that dimension and that aspect of their relationship. 
He taught me toughness. Boy, did he teach me toughness. Trust me, there was no room for crybabies in our house. He taught me teamwork. And by all means, no player was ever more important than a team. And my father, for those who don't know, chose to run the wishbone, which some of you younger generation people do not even know what that is, but it never entailed throwing. But that was the type of coach he was, and that was the type of dad he was. He would never showcase his son's talents or anyone else's talents for their good rather than the team's good. And so then in there, in that moment on that plane, I was determined for selfish reasons to get to this point, to acknowledge how important he was. I would not be here before you today without my father. There's no doubt whatsoever. And one last story about his dad. And never underestimate the importance of being there for your boy. One more thing about my father, and this is something I've never told anyone, including Deanna. My dad was my high school football coach. He was the head football coach. He coached me and my two brothers. But I, I, didn't, I never had a car growing up. I always rode to and from school with my father in his truck, and so he was always the last to leave the building because he had to turn the lights off, lock up, and then we made our way home. So it was the last high school football game of my high school career. And although I don't remember how I played before, and I don't remember how I played in the last game, what I do remember is sitting outside the coach's office say on a Wednesday, waiting for my father to come out so we could leave. It was dark, and I overheard my father talking to the three other coaches, and I heard him, and I, I assume I didn't play as well the previous week only because of what he said, and he said, I can assure you one thing about my son. He will play better. He will redeem himself. I know my son. He has it in him, and I never let him know that I heard that. I never said that to anyone else, but I thought to myself, that's a pretty good compliment, you know. I, I, my chest kind of swole up, and I, again, I never told anyone, but I, I never forgot that statement and that comment that he made to those other coaches. And I want you to know, Dad, I spent the rest of my career trying to redeem myself. I'm working on it. I'm trying to get through it. Uh, but I spent the rest of my career trying to redeem myself and make him proud. And I hope I succeeded. And then he just had to take a break, as you could tell. And we all did. I got to tell you, the set, when it came back to ESPN, every single guy is crying. Every single guy. Anyway, then he goes on to thank a lot of other people. And you're going to get to this part of the speech. And it's all these strangers, these coaches, who just love on him. But tough love. They wanted to see the best Brett Favre he could be. 
And I think too often we're, look, I love our country, I love our people, and I love our parents, but I think sometimes we go overboard in a few praise of our kids. We're creating entitled children. And maybe his dad went the other extreme and didn't say, I love you enough. But my goodness, listen to that. Listen to it. And listen, you had to see the, the pictures of the family members and the friends and the pride he had in his dad and the pride his dad had in him. And the performance he got out of his son. He got the best out of his son. And in the end, his parents, that's our job. I mean, we got to love our kids. We got to love them enough to sometimes discipline them. And Brett Favre's dad was not afraid to do that. The mom provided the love. The dad provided the discipline. As he put it, it was a great blend. And it worked for him. And when we come back, we're going to hear about those other men in his life. The coaches who believed in him and gave him a shot. And in the end, one man, one businessman who gave him a shot in the NFL. When no one else thought he should be there. And again, Favre will break down one or two more times here. But it's raw and it is real. And we all did with him, those of us who watched it. And when we come back, more with Brett Favre, his gratitude, evident, his love, evident. The Canton Hall of Fame speech that we're bringing to you here on Our American Story, celebrating the career of Brett Favre in Brett Favre's words. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and our final segment and installment of Brett Favre's great speech at the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. A 20-year career in the NFL, he smashed every record, the good ones and the bad ones. 11 Pro Bowls, three MVP awards, and in this particular part of the speech, he went on to thank some of his coaches, and one in particular was special. And it was a coach at Southern Miss. He didn't get picked by any of the big programs. He got only one scholarship offer. And it wasn't an SEC school right up the road, right here in Oxford, Mississippi, Ole Miss. No. It was little old Southern Miss in Hattiesburg. There are two coaches in particular that were at Southern Miss at the time that meant more than anyone. Mark McHale was offensive line coach. And Mark was the recruiting recruited the, the area of the Mississippi Gulf Coast in which I played. And he fought tooth and nail to get me a scholarship, and it came down to the last hour. And when I say last hour, I literally mean last hour. And he fought, and he believed in me, and I thank him so much. He's coaching high school football back in West Virginia, probably watching right now. So, Coach, I thank you so much for believing in me and sticking it out giving me that opportunity. And the second coach is a guy who has since passed away, and his name is Thamus Coleman. And as we called him back then, Famous Thamus, was a great guy. And I found out this story, this was a story that Ron Wolf would later tell me after I started playing in Green Bay. Well, he came down after my senior year to watch film of my senior season. And I believe Ron at the time was with the Jets and was looking for a quarterback. 
And he, after he watched this, this film of my senior year upon leaving the building, famous Coleman said, well, Ron, what did you think? And Ron Wolf said, not that impressed. We said, I'm not sure if you know, Brett had a really bad car wreck right before the start of this season. He lost 34 inches of his intestines. He fractured a vertebrae in his back. Not only is he, was he not supposed to play, we didn't think he would. And he suffered other injuries as well. But he did start four years for us, and I encourage you to go back in and watch the three previous years. Well, Ron Wolf took his advice and went back in and watched the film. And upon leaving, famous Coleman said, well, what did you think? And as I like to say, the rest is history. Without that coach going the extra yard, there goes Brett Favre's NFL career. And then it took one businessman, Ron Wolf. He was the GM of the Packers, the man who turned the Packers around. And one man, one woman can always make a difference, folks. In fact, they almost always do. And when he takes over, he brings in this young guy named Brett Favre. And here is Brett talking about the general manager. And you don't hear athletes talk about GMs like this. Ron Wolf is the single most important person to the Packers' rebirth than any other person out there. Player, coach, GM. It had been almost 25 years since the Packers had had any success when Ron Wolf took over. And since then, we all know what the Packers have done. Without Ron Wolf, Mike Holmgren would not have coached in Green Bay. There would not have been a Brett Favre. There would not have been a Favre to Sharp and Driver and Brooks, Freeman, Chimura, Keith Jackson, Dorsey Levins, Edgar Bennett, Frank Winters, Santana Dotson, Andre Wright. The list goes on and on. The single biggest free agent acquisition in NFL history is Reggie White. And as I like to say, Ron Wolf made it cool to come to Green Bay. So I thank you, Ron, for believing in me, seeing something in me that others didn't see, probably including myself, and sticking your neck out there for one of the riskiest and craziest trades in NFL history. When you decided to trade a first-round pick for me uh, with Atlanta. So I say thank you, Ron. I love you. You mean more to me than anyone. And he said it a few times. These people stuck their neck outs for him, and they believed in him. So anytime you get a chance and you can stick your neck out for someone and then follow that up with some real belief, oh my goodness, you can change a life, folks. Here's Brett Favre on Coach Mike Holmgren. The man he hired, Mike Holmgren, the greatest head coach I've ever played for. I see him sitting with my good friend Matt Hasselback. We both can attest. He's one of the toughest and most demanding coaches you will ever be around. He's a true perfectionist, and I'm sure Steve and Joe would say the same thing. But he was a very fair guy, and I know that 
because could you imagine being Mike Holmgren and leaving San Francisco? Tremendous success. Coaching two of the greatest players of all time, Joe Montana and Steve Young, and getting stuck with Brett Favre. <laughs> now, I thought I was good, but I had no idea what good was. And I am so thankful that Mike chewed my ass, but believed enough in me to give me another chance. Because there were many times he could have and should have pulled me. And had he done that, there's probably someone else standing here before you talking. So I'm thankful, Mike, for you and believing in me. I thought I was good, but I had no idea what good was. And look at the gratitude he has for this man, that while he was going through that crucible, he had to be cursing Mike Holmgren every other day. Do you know who I am? I'm Brett Favre. And Holmgren just right back in his grill. Right back in his grill. You can do better but never taking him off the field. Wow. He then asked the players who he played with to stand up, and they all showed up. It was, well, it was a testimony to Favre's leadership talents. I want the guys that I played with to stand up. I'd love to call each and every one of you out by name. And this is college, too. If there's one, stand up. If there's 100, stand up. I love you guys. I love you. Let me tell you, and this may not be a secret, I love playing with you guys. It was a blast. I love carrying you off on the fireman carry. I love tackling you. I love slapping Marco in the ass. I loved it. I loved it. And he loved it too. And for everyone up here, they would all agree, that's what it's all about. Not necessarily slapping them on the ass, but loving your teammates, competing, fighting, scratching, tough losses, tough wins. Man, that's what it's all about. And in the end, he closed it out by talking about the things he was most proud of. Here's Brett Favre closing out one of the great speeches ever at Canton. What I'm most proud of, what I think about most has nothing to do with statistics. Although, who would have ever thought that a young man from Kill, Mississippi, whose father ran the wishbone, would hold every passing record in NFL history at one time? Pretty doggone amazing, if you ask me. But, but, what I, but I, that's not what makes me most proud. What makes me most proud is how I played the game and being real, authentic, and spontaneous and loving the game to me is what it was all about. I couldn't believe that they paid us and that I was racking up statistics like I was. I was just having fun. And I'm most proud of that. And so when I look back over my 20 years, I can honestly tell you, I can't tell you a lot, but I can honestly tell you that I hold no regrets. Did, did we win every game? No. Did I make every throw? No. Did I make mistakes? More than I care to count. But I can say this, there was never one time 
where I did not give it all I could. You know, and I, I've said this to my daughters, and I, I say it to any young person out there who is playing sports. Don't ever look back and regret not doing your best. Don't ever look back, because there are no second chances. When you're 25 and you wish you would have done something in high school, it's too late. Don't cheat yourself. Don't cheat your teammates. Work as hard as you possibly can. Lay it all on the line, and whatever happens, happens. But you won't look back and regret. I don't regret anything. It's not to say it was perfect. I don't regret anything, and that's what I'm most proud of. And I say thank you again. You know, most people fail out of self-sabotage. They just don't give it their all. Some self-doubt, something, some upbringing, who knows what. And Favre's a lucky man. His dad taught him how to give his all. His mom taught him how to keep that human nature and not let the competitive instinct overwhelm everything. Love and surrender. And he did both so well. And that's what people loved about Brett Favre. He surrendered everything on that field, and yet he did it with love. The best of the masculine and feminine, and whatever either of those things even mean anymore. It was all there. This is Lee Habib. Brett Favre's extraordinary speech, pretty much unedited. For you, this is Our American Stories.